Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's gospel story takes place uh, in the city of Nain, which is about nine miles south of Nazareth. That might sound a lot further than most of us would like to walk. However, even in our world filled with bicycles and cars, most of us can pretty easily put in about three miles an hour a fairly leisurely 20 minutes per mile, as could our loaded mules if we had them. And that means that today's event takes place only about a three-hour journey from Jesus' childhood home in Nazareth. Jesus, by this point, is getting pretty famous. I mean, the passage tells us today that he and his disciples are accompanied by many people. They are probably chatting about the parables and messages that Jesus has been preaching. Perhaps they're talking happily about other amazing miracles they've seen, and they have a plan for today, to get from Capernaum to Nain. But as they approach the town, another large crowd is heading out of the city. At the front of that crowd would have been the women, wailing, weeping very loudly as they threw dust on their heads. They would have been followed by the male relatives of the dead man carrying his body on a stretcher-like conveyance, his face covered by a squarish piece of cloth and his body wrapped in a shroud. We'll come back to those pieces of burial cloth a little later in our story. But first, let's focus on the crowds. Following the wailing women and the men carrying that man on the bier would have been a large crowd of this man's relatives and others who knew him from town. In those days, people tended to live literally with their extended families. When a new couple would get married, the wife would go and live with her husband's family. And if there wasn't a spare room in the household, they would simply add another room to the tent or the house. In fact, this remains true even today in many cultures around the world. And you can even see farmhouses outside of Boston and other places in the country Uh, today where it looks like they just sort of bolted on another part of the house because they were doing this exact practice. So it turns out too that this is exactly what Jesus was saying when he said that in my father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. What Jesus is saying there is he has plenty of room in his father's house for each of us when we get married to the groom, to Jesus himself, and join his family. They'll just build another room for you. They're ready for you, him and his father. Anyway, my point is that there would have been a lot of relatives, perhaps sisters, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, etc., accompanying this dead man to his grave. Another thing worth noting is that this man would have just died a few hours before. There was little time for mourning before the burial. They didn't practice embalming, and there was no refrigeration. If that wasn't reason enough to get the person buried within a few hours, Jewish law required speedy burial, even for Gentiles, enemies, and criminals. Indeed, this is the only reason that Jesus and the others he was crucified with were taken down from the crosses. In other parts of the Roman Empire, those crucified would have been left to rot on the crosses and be picked apart by birds and wild animals. And the graves were outside the city, 
because those who would come in contact with the cemetery would become ritually unclean. So this tells us that Jesus and his crowd were almost to their destination of name. It had been a long journey. Rather than coming from Nazareth just nine miles away, St. Luke tells us they had last been in Capernaum, 22 miles away. That would have been considered the so-called day's journey, an eight-hour-ish journey of walking. They had been walking all day long. They were tired. They were hungry. They were thirsty. And they were just about to get to a place of respite and name. You can imagine how much they just wanted to keep going, check into the local inn, and put their feet up. I'm sure they would have loved to just let this funeral procession pass them by. After all, it seems likely that this wasn't the first funeral procession Jesus and his disciples had encountered. People die all the time, of course. But something happens. Jesus' crowd gets wind of the backstory. This man was the only son of his mother. She had lost her husband sometime before. She was a widow. And now the person who was left responsible for making sure that she was provided for, her son, despite all the rest of the family I told you about being around, that son was dead. This was a serious problem at the time of Jesus. Yes, the other members of the family surely would have been compassionate, but they also had their own families to provide for. For this widow, this event was not just a tragic loss of someone she cared about deeply. And for those of us who are parents, as you can imagine, or for some of you who may have actually had the horrible experience of burying one of your children, you know this pain was added to her heart. Yet there was more. There wasn't only the grief to deal with, but also a future of poverty and isolation that she was being forced into by her son's death. At that time, there was no social security, no charities like there are today. Not only was her son physically dead, this woman was facing a sort of social and spiritual death. There's no question that Jesus also sees his personal situation that is coming shortly, paralleled here. We know that Jesus is the only son of his mother. We know that he has lost his father, Joseph, very likely well before he started his public ministry, as we don't hear anything else about him after the events when he was 12, and the church has preserved our knowledge that Joseph was an older man when Jesus was born. His mother, the Blessed Virgin, would soon be in the same position as this widow. And Jesus would ask St. John from the cross to care for her as his own mother so that she would not experience the devastating social consequences this widow was about to experience. So as this news passes through the crowd and it gets to Jesus, he's deeply moved. Yes, he's tired. Yes, he's hungry. But he can wait. And even the stories of all the miracles, magnificent healings, and raising from the dead that Jesus had been doing before had passed from Jesus' crowd to the funeral possession, it seems that no one cared. They didn't ask Jesus to do anything. Jesus just simply does this out of his own compassion and love for mankind. When the widow reaches him along that road, he only says to her, don't cry. I think that would have come across maybe as lacking a little bit of empathy, pretty trite, 
except for what happens next. He touches the stretcher carrying the young man, and those around him stop, and he simply says, young man, I say to thee, arise. And the man does. And they recognize that they are witnessing something great. They say that God hath visited his people. Put another way, God himself has come to help his people. Indeed, he has. So what does this story have to do with us today? Well, recall last week that Subdeacon Stephen shared with us his message about focusing on the now, on today. Not yesterday, not tomorrow. For Jesus says the worries of the day are sufficient for the day. The needs of the present are the only needs that matter. Yes, Jesus and his companions are hungry. Yes, they are thirsty. Yes, they are tired. And these two groups will pass each other by for a mere instant on this long hour's journey. There is only that razor-sharp edge of the present as Jesus and this widow pass one another for him to say, don't cry, and change the whole course of this burial procession. They can't really head into town first and grab a meal and a few hours rest, right? The burial will be over. The family will be eating their repast meal back in town. Is Jesus going to convince them all to head back out there to raise him from the dead? His accompanying crowd won't see the miracle because they'll be kicking back at the bar, having a drink, continuing to revel in the great miracles that they've seen. The moment for God's action is now. Furthermore, just as we heard last week that God will take care of our needs just as he does the birds of the air and the grass of the fields, he will take care of our needs without him asking him for anything. God loves us. He's always providing for us. Whether we see it or not, he has richly clothed us and fed us and given us drink. And how today's story takes us deeper. It tells us that if we remain focused on our day-to-day -day concerns, whether that be figuring out how to get food, rushing through the aisles of the grocery store, which place to call for takeout tonight, driving back and forth to work, shuttling our kids from activity to activity, walking the malls or surfing the internet to get more stuff to feel that we're somehow comfortably provided for, like the man in our morning prayer gospel this morning. If we focus on just getting from point A to point B, on the ordinary of just getting from Capernaum to Nain, we'll miss the extraordinary moment that takes place in a few seconds of our hours-long journey along that road. The raising of the widow's son reiterates the message of last week's message to focus on the present, but it takes us further by telling us what to focus on. It tells us again that we are not to focus our efforts on what we shall eat, drink, or how we should be clothed, even in the present, but that we should focus on the present and every moment of that present in our life the focus should be on the dead and bringing the dead to life. You, my brothers and sisters, have the power of life over death. Now, you probably say, Father Ben, you must be off your rocker. You say, I haven't seen a funeral procession in years, and when I do, it's usually speeding by with its flashers on. And frankly, I can't even get a seed in my garden to grow, much less raise a person from the dead. My dearest brothers and sisters, I must disagree. The good news of the gospel is that, in fact, you have been given the power of life 
of our debt. How, you ask? Well, although there are likely very few of us who will reach the levels of spiritual attainment that some of the apostles and others have reached over the ages by literally raising others to life who are physically dead, each of us has not only the power but the responsibility to raise others from the dead. First, we do have the power of physical healing. Even those of us who are not physicians know how to remove physical suffering from the lives of our brothers and sisters in this world. We can provide those in need with shelter, food, and clothing. We can bind their physical wounds. We can encourage them to seek the aid of physicians, psychologists, addiction specialists, and social workers who God has given us through his grace to help us through these physical ailments. And I'll take a moment here to point out something that I think is very important. We all too often in our society separate mental illness from physical illness. But as a neurologist, I think this is a false dichotomy. Our heart has both an anatomy, a physical structure, and a physiology, a functional structure. If the heart's anatomy is disturbed, for example, through a heart attack, then the physiology, the functioning of the heart is disturbed. Likewise, if the functional structure is disturbed, for example, an abnormal chemical imbalance makes the heart beat irregularly, then the anatomical physical structure of the heart can likewise be damaged. And no one thinks it's some kind of stigma to have an abnormal heart rhythm. Mental illness is a physical illness of our brain. It just happens to affect the physiologic rather than the anatomical. And we should not allow it to be stigmatized any more than an abnormal heart rhythm, as so many in our culture have. Likewise, physical, ailment, physical illness has a spiritual component, whether it be cancer or depression. As Orthodox Christians, we see mankind in its whole unity of mind, body, and spirit. Each element has an equal role, role to play in humanity. No part's better than the other, and those parts must be functioning cooperatively and lovingly with one another in the pattern of the Holy Trinity for us to reach our highest potential. Second, we have the power of spiritual healing. We ourselves have initiated that healing in one way or another. If you're visiting today, you've entered into God's home of healing, a hospital for the sinner, and therefore a hospital where every one of us can seek healing. If you're an inquirer or catechumen, you have begun to experience that healing energy. And for those of us who have been initiated into the fullness of the church, we have been sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit, and we weekly remember this very story in the context of Jesus' life. On the altar behind me is that cold slab upon which Jesus was laying. That white cloth on the altar represents the burial shroud. And the face covering I talked about is a small, square, white piece of cloth we call a corporal, upon which we don't just merely think about in our minds some symbol of our faith, but we literally resurrect Jesus. Not his physical body, of course. He did that himself. But on the altar, we make real Jesus' rising again. He reappears physically before us. This is in the meaning of the word resurgent from which our word resurrection is derived. Jesus rises again from those burial clothes on the altar right here in front of us each week in the bread and the wine. We remember Jesus' resurrection. We put the arms and legs back on Jesus. That's what remember really means. Not just some pleasant idea we ponder in our hearts and our minds. 
we bring down the Holy Spirit and say to this bread and wine, arise. And it becomes not just bread and wine, but Jesus' resurrected reappearance before us here and now. We must be wholly present in that moment. And in that moment, we will no longer have to fear what we will eat or what we will drink, for we will dine on the divine. We will not have to wonder what we will wear, for we will be clothed with Christ. We will not have to worry about what we are to do, for we will be remembering Christ. We will be his hands and feet to the world. The problem is that we all too often put our dead outside the city walls. This has been physically practiced for thousands of years. And by putting our dead outside the walls, speaking here about our spiritual deadness, we put death outside our walls so we don't have to deal with it. We get busy with the world and what we think is more important, our more important destination as we pass the dead by and head on to Nain to take care of our hunger, our thirst for something else. We fail to see that we are dead. We fail to see our neighbors are dead. We walk on by and we choose not to stop the death that otherwise just passes us by. So again, we have to focus on the worry of the day. And the worry of the day is the dead and those affected by it like this widow. We must pay attention to the spiritual deadness of our world. If we are capable, we must engage with it and call it what it is, death. We have to weep about it. We must be moved with compassion about what that death means to those around us. How like the widow, it is destroying their life. Whether that is political hyperdivision, sexism, racism, rampant immorality, ignoring God, whatever it may be, these things are death, not just to the people practicing them, but to those within their blast range. However, most of us aren't ready to engage with the death around us because we haven't filled ourselves with life. We're still dead, and we need to focus first on restoring order to ourselves and then filling ourselves with life. Until we, have, and until we have some degree of life in us, it's most likely that engaging with death is only going to lead to our own demise. But we can't wait until we're saints either. Because if you're anything like me, you're going to be waiting a long time. We must engage today at the level of life that we have filled ourselves with through our engagement with the sacraments of the church, through prayer, through fasting, through giving alms, through the training of our soul through avoiding sin as Christ commands us, not because he's some sort of taskmaster, but because he wants us to have life and have life abundantly, to continue to fill ourselves more and more and more with that abundant life. Not only does he want us to have that life abundantly, he wants us as his hands and feet through our feeding on his very body and blood to bring that abundant life to all around us. He wants to raise the dead. Are you regularly encountering God humbly so that he can fill you with his life? Are you engaging with your families, your coworkers, the people that you meet in a life-giving way? Or are you perpetuating death? I'm calling you, brothers and sisters, to engage with death, whether it's in your soul, the soul of your brother and sister in Christ, or in the world, it's killing your neighbor. It's the worry that is enough for the day. It is the only worry of the day. Participate with me in the resurrection. Come to the altar and feed on life itself. Carry it out that door. Put your hand on the funeral bier. Stop the world within you and around you and say, 
arise. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.